Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Hi, my name is Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician and I'm also co-chair of the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association or JOMA's Preventative Health Committee. I'm here today with Rabbi Tzvi Gluck from Amudim. Rabbi Gluck, from his teenage years forward, he has distinguished himself in the world of activism. The son of Rabbi Edgar Gluck, a pioneer who set the standard for others to follow in the public service arena, Tzvi grew up in a home where doing for others was part of the daily diet. By the time he was 19, he was heavily involved in Our Place, a Brooklyn drop-in center for victims of abuse and addiction. And within two years, he had deepened his commitment to the Jewish community, joining Queen Satsala and serving as the community liaison to the NYPD. An ingrained sense of volunteerism pushed Svi to commit himself even further, and he became certified as a paramedic and took on the position of chaplain for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Sharing his phone number with anyone needing help navigating a personal crisis, Svi became the go-to guy in any emergency with Rabbanim and community leaders worldwide reaching out to him at all hours of the day and night. With the encouragement of community leaders, Svi founded Amudim Community Resources in 2014, formalized his many efforts helping the Jewish community all across the board, all across the globe. In just a few short years, Amudim has become the address for anyone in crisis, fielding thousands of phone calls, referring clients for services that best meet their needs, working to prevent tragedies by promoting education and awareness, and partnering with the NYPD to offer Narcan trainings throughout the greater New York area. I just want to say that um, I really dislike the term teens at risk. This talk is geared for everyone, all parents, all teens, any other community members, because all of our children are at risk for both substance use and substance abuse. Rabbi Gluck, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity to help continue raising awareness on such important topics. Absolutely. And we're very close to Purim, so I do want to focus on Purim, but I'd like to start with just a little background. I use the term substance abuse and substance use, and I would like if you could just tell me the difference between the two, please. So really, there's three terminologies. Mm-hmm. There's substance use, substance abuse, and then substance dependence. Or dependence. Mm-hmm. Um, so substance use, just to keep it simple, is consumption of any alcohol or drugs, mm-hmm. whether having a beer, whether it's having a glass of wine or even just a shot, you know, a vodka or something. Substance use in and of itself may not necessarily pose a threat, but can, you know, and let me rephrase that. Substance use in and of itself may not necessarily pose a threat, but it's something to keep an eye on, especially when dealing with people that shouldn't be drinking because of their age. Mm-hmm. Substance abuse is when somebody's continuously to use drugs or alcohol, even when it's their personal life, their family life, their work life, or even their health. For example, if somebody knows that they could possibly get fired, let's say, um, if they test positive for drugs, mm-hmm. use it anyway. Mm-hmm abuse you know if right. somebody knows that they can't get up in the morning but they'll get drunk the night before that's abuse it's affecting their daily functioning it's affecting their exactly that's mm-hmm. a terminology and then you have um dependency which is either being dependent on you know alcohol or drugs which is really and I, and I use the term as follows i don't know anybody that woke up in the morning and decided they wanted to be dependent on right. alcohol or drugs or they wanted to be an addict 
And at that point, you know, they're together a chayla, they're a sick person. You know, we stop punishing them and try to help them. But the fact is that when people are abusing substances long enough, their body builds up a tolerance to it. And then all of a sudden, you know, they need more and more of the same substance in order to get the same desired result. And then they actually become dependent on it. And it, it's a real dependency, like literally. I mean, I'm sure as a physician, whether it was in your practice or whether it's in school, you've seen withdrawal symptoms from people. And, you know, this is something that's real. So the point of dependency is where it becomes really dangerous. That's the, from a terminology standpoint. Right. Now, you mentioned that by age alone, kids can be at risk. Can you just go over that, please? It's a couple of things. Well, I mean, right. So the joke I like to always say is, you know, usually when I'm speaking in public is by a raise of hands, how many people actually enjoy their first uh, drink of alcohol? And have yet had anybody say yes? Mm-hmm. But the fact is that the younger people start, whether it's alcohol or drugs, um, the, it creates you know, a stronger affinity. And the data shows that the chances of people becoming substance abusers or dependents actually increase trem- you know, tremendously for people that start younger. Um, the other part of starting young, which is extremely crucial, and this is even more important now with, you know, let's face it, marijuana is... Mm-hmm legal in more and more states and for recreational, not just medical. And at the end of the day, the studies do show that until the age of 23, the human brain does not fully develop. Actually, mm-hmm. studies will go up until the age of 26, but 23 for sure. And, uh, you know, when we used to, as kids, you know, there was that commercial, this is your brain, this is your brain. Brain on drugs, right? So I, the used egg. To, right. Right, the egg. so I used to just get hungry and say, I need an omelet. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw that, but the truth is, it really does fry brain cells, and, and we're seeing that more and more now. So, you know, the younger people start, now, the problem is, and this is something that's interesting that you should know, uh, you know, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'll ask you anyway. What okay. do you think the national uh, average of age of when parents start speaking to their children about alcohol is? Uh, what age? I would say maybe 13. Okay, and do you know what the national, you're actually right, by the way, um, which is good. Do you know the national average of when a child has their first unapproved drink, we'll call it? 12? Between 9 and 10. <gasps> oh, wow. This is the national average. Now, of course, We're not talking about from people who give no, their kids. Of course. Right. Again, so there is going to be a difference in front people when they make kiddish and they give their kids a sip, and that's a, that is a whole discussion that we're going to get into. Mm-hmm. The fact remains, on a national average, there's a two to three year gap from when we're talking to our children about something from when they've actually tested it. So this is something that we need to also understand that very often people will be like, well, I don't want to discuss something with my children because I'm going to expose them to it. Right. And my response to that is always the same. I would rather be the one to expose something to my children than having somebody else do it and them not having that knowledge and safety net of knowing they can be open and talk to me. Because let's remember, forget about anything addiction related, just parenting in general. When children feel comfortable that they can speak to their parents about anything, then automatically when there's issues, they feel more comfortable to address it. When children don't have that comfort feeling, then unfortunately what ends up happening is when there is a problem, which nobody should ever have, they don't have where to turn. Right. So relationship is a really important protective factor. And I think it's the most important um, mm-hmm. protection. I think that relationships is the number one. 
And number two is children learn from what they see. Right. Before I forget, though, I just want to say one thing. Um, there's a beautiful letter by, I think, Shoshana Schwartz, who is at Returno today in Mishpacha magazine. And she made a very important point because they've been having a um, column about, quote, risk factors with, I think, Rabbi Ben Shushan. Um, and what she said was it was very beautiful that they've been showing um, children who do have substance abuse problems, whose parents are very close to them, who do have an amazing relationship with them because it can happen to anyone. So yes, we have a very important protective factor of the relationship, but we should never let anyone think that they have that and it still happens to them. There's something that they did wrong because there are so many factors. Right. So absolutely. And, you know, you can say the same thing about, you know, in almost any area that we deal with, we have to do our best. Exactly. Educate and protect and prevent. And then we got to dive into hope that it works out. Right. And talk about it and not be afraid to talk about it younger than perhaps we may think we should. Absolutely. Right. And just another key point as far as the topic, because I I have someone that I know that made a deal with their kids. Mm -hmm. No matter what you do, if you're ever in trouble, Call me, I'll be there for you, and I promise I will not address whatever that issue was. So you will not have to suffer any consequences if you're calling me when you're in trouble. Now that sounds a bit harsh, right? So I, true story, in this one specific family, which is a close friend of mine, their 15-year-old son got really drunk one night, mm-hmm. called the father, and said, Dad, you promised that I won't get into trouble. I'm at this and this place, here's the address, I'm drunk, I need to go home. The father picked him up, brought him home, never said a word about it. I can wow. tell you, now five years later, this kid never touched alcohol again. Now, is that always the method? No. Everybody needs to know their own children. They know their children better than you and I know their children. So everybody needs to know what works, but they cannot be scared to approach the subjects. That's really the key component here. And that's really amazing because you're, you're talking about sort of uh, almost a, a harm reduction approach, meaning you're going to tell your kids, um, this is what I want you to know. Um, this is what I want you to not do. But no matter what, I'm there for you. And I want you to feel you can always turn to me. And that's a really important message. Absolutely. I'm not telling the kids it's okay to drink by doing that. It may feel like it, but you are not. Absolutely. No, they don't feel like it. That's the other beautiful part about it. Right. Is not saying it's okay, but when, when that kid is calling their parent, their father or mother, and he or she is saying, I'm in trouble. Mom, dad, please help me. Mommy, Tati, come pick me up. They know that even without somebody reprimanding or anything, that's it. The, the game's over. You know, they, they, they've come out. And the beautiful thing is that that means that A, you have that relationship factor. And B is usually that's more than enough to send a message. You know, it's very different than condoning it. People often ask me, is it okay if my kid wants to drink to drink in front of me? I'm like, first of all, legally, it's not okay because... Right give anybody any to drink at all however you know you want to start with the from component the religious side of things kiddish yayin you know so I, I usually say as follows if somebody has chas v'shalom an illness and they can't eat a certain food right mm-hmm. all of a sudden that food is something that is being served and you just want your kid to taste a little bit of it mm-hmm. not everything twice of course not this is something that can cause harm to my child. Mm-hmm. So for that, people understand it better. If someone has, you know, childhood diabetes, right? They're not giving their kid candy. Why? Because it will kill them. But they don't seem to understand it when it comes to alcohol. And, right. and that, 
always boggled my mind. Right. You mentioned it before, but just make it clear that the younger the child is, the more at risk for later substance abuse they are when they're exposed to alcohol Absolutely. at an early age. We're not just talking about a tiny sip here. No, so there are people to... that do believe that they want their kids to get drunk in front of them so that they can teach them something. Right. And which, I, which is something that I strongly disagree with. But by the right. way, that exposure, let, let me go another step also. Exposure doesn't only have to be drinking, okay? Mm-hmm. I, just recently, we published a story in one of our Mudim Weekly newsletters, and it's, you know, stories that we've actually, that, that come through our office, that we write up every week. And this was a story about a young child that got really, really drunk. Um, uh, parents couldn't figure it out. By the time they realized it, and we got them into help, the kid's answer was, what do you mean? But Tati does this with his friends every Shabbos. So, ah, the modeling you mentioned before they, before I interrupted you. So, right. So that's what with that where you know a guy comes home from a business trip and i say i use this example all the time and i'll keep using it because i love it mm-hmm. and he comes home and he shows off this fancy bottle that he bought in duty free or they start talking about the vintage wine and they make their shabbos table all about the booze the scotch the wine the year the type what are you teaching your kids when that's the main topic of discussion at your meal versus let's do the flip side right i could tell you in my house for example <clears throat> where we do make a lachaim on shabbos i'm not a Drinking. I'm against drinking irresponsibly. Mm-hmm. My liquor cabinet does not have glass windows on it. You cannot see it from the table. Mm-hmm. Bottle comes out, you pour a lechaim, the bottle goes back in and you close the door. You know, when people come into their homes and the first thing the kid sees after a long day of school is a beautiful wine selection or a scotch selection and then they talk about it. What messaging are we giving our kids even without giving them the actual alcohol to drink. Exactly. Or the Kiddush Club. Well, that, I mean, you know, it's funny. When we put out the video, the mm-hmm. Kiddush Club, so all of my friends threatened to never talk to me again. Oh, but... it's a great video, though. Oh, that's great, though. It's my so wife... powerful. I saw it last night. It was powerful, and all of my wife's friends were like, oh, that's so true. And people were, like, really arguing back and forth. And the truth is, all of the videos that Amudim has put out have been put out unfortunately, as a result of an increase of that type of matter, go to our production team and say, hey, we got to create better awareness on this specific issue. And that's when we go into action mode. The Kiddush Club was produced after we had dozens and dozens of literally that exact scenario, either from drinking in shul or from drinking by friends' houses. Now, again, that video specifically, that PSA focused on not just the guy drinking and his friends drinking, but the guy's son watching him drink and learning from him right. and doing himself. Right. Truth is, anybody that thinks their kids don't know what they're doing is living in la-la land. I mean, I cannot tell you, just recently we had a situation where a young child, and I'm talking about like an eight-year-old, um, was by a friend for Shabbos because the parents had a simcha. Mm-hmm. And by dessert, the friend's mother brought out a, a tray of brownies. And this eight-year-old looks at her friend's mother and her asks, are those the brownies I'm allowed to eat? Or I'm not? <gasps> oh. Oh. You cut out for a second. I, I said, I got this story straight from that mother. Wow. The mother that was serving the food. Wow. Uh, you know, so, I mean, how do you explain that? An eight-year-old asking, and by the way, for the listeners that don't understand what that means, is that there are people that will bake cakes or make candies or make mixed drinks that include marijuana or other substances, which was the case here. 
And by the but, way, with edible marijuana, you can get very sick, particularly children can get very sick with it. Yeah, we just uh, had a situation where two children opened up the fridge, finished off an entire tray of it, ended up in the hospital for over a week. Uh, and then, and, and now let's look at the full picture. Now it's not just the children getting sick, which is of course very important, you know, very important. And we want to make, you know, the Nishmat, the Mordlan, Afshasechem remains. Now there's child services involved. Now there's legal agencies. Now there's orders of protection. You know, this becomes an entire nightmare on all sides of the coin. And ironically, the calls to me did not come about what, what can we do to make sure the children are okay, but oh my gosh, the police and the services, can we help the and I'm like, well, one second. Not that we should or shouldn't help the parents, but are we forgetting what happened here? Wow. Full picture. So, I mean, and this is something that really ranges in ages. I mean, we had a story, and I've said this, you know, where there was a, a top bacher in a yeshiva. This was post-high school, base medrash. Literally, the kid was learning Yaman Velayla, okay? And I get a phone call from the yeshiva one day saying, we need to help him. We just found out that he's a major alcoholic. Mm-hmm. What do you mean you just found out? Well, he used to come in every morning with a thermos with his coffee, and uh, this morning he tripped, the coffee spilled, and somebody smelled it, and it stunk from alcohol. And when we asked him, he said, yeah, he, every day he makes his coffee in the thermos, spills out half, and fills up half of the, and it's a pretty sizable thermos, with vodka. Oh, they knew that. Now let's call that. <clears throat> this is what we would term a functioning addict, right? right? Nobody knows Person's able to maintain their schedule, gets the yeshiva on time, is learning great, but the fact is, is still an addict. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this, Baruch Baruch Hashem, we got him help that he needed, but the point is that this can be anybody, anywhere, without even, you know, even realizing it. So how would parents know, in terms of prevention, or in terms of just picking it up, what would be some signs the parents could look for? Again, so signs are very, you know, it's a, t- it's a tough question, and I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. Let's assume I would say, uh, you know, being overly tired, right? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? I have They're all teens, yeah. All teens tired. Tired. So, so the truth is that really signs and symptoms, you have to look at behavior changes, patterns. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a big one, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, change of friends is usually a pretty good indicator. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, change of mental status, you know, the way that this other case came to us from, that I just mentioned that we wrote about, I think last week or two weeks ago, was that the mother started noticing that the child was like at certain times of the day, just acting not himself. And couldn't figure out why until following him literally like a, like a private eye and watching him drinking and like, oh my gosh, that, that, now it makes sense. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is that, I mean, you know, we have to also learn to respect our children's privacy, you know, mm-hmm. so can't be like overly, you know, insane about this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Same time, if we do have an, and I'm going to go back to the open relationship. Right. If there's a healthy relationship, then it's much easier to catch on to these things. Um, you know, how often are parents actually sitting down with their kids and just choosing with them, having dinner with them without their phone attached to them, you know, or just discussing their day or things of that nature, you know? So most of the prevention that we talk about it's really not about alcohol at all. Right. It's about relationship. I mean, I'll give you an example. I learned from somebody. I, I try very hard, and I'm not saying this to Chasra Shalom show off, but I'm, I'm pretty busy. But wow. I try very hard to never walk into my house while I'm on the phone. Mm-hmm. I will finish my phone conversation outside, hang up, and come in so that when my kids see me, hi, how are you? How was your day? 
Um, minimum of once a week, personally, I'm home. My phone is not answered from about 5.30 till 8.30 p.m. No matter what's going on in the world, I don't care because I am home having dinner with my kids, doing homework, and it's only one night a week that we for sure do it. You know, it's a whole uh, ceremony by us in the family at the workhouse. But the fact is that became Kodesh Kodeshim. Right. You know, spending time with my kids. Undistracted. Getting to know them, getting to know what they like, how their day was, playing a board game with them. You know, Shabbos afternoon is the perfect time to spend time. I know we all love to sleep. Don't get me wrong. I love to take a nap also. But at the end of the day, what's more important, you know, we have to really just spend time. But as far as what to look for, so behavior changes is very important. Change of friendships, very important. Change of mental status. Um, Grades, whether it's, and this is something very interesting. People don't always get this. Usually when you say change of grades, people assume it means dropping of grades, right? An A student becoming a C or D student. Mm-hmm. Actually, interesting enough, it works both directions. If somebody is a C or B minus student and all of a sudden becomes an A plus student, that's also an unhealthy change. Because? Because at the end of the day, there's a compensation that's going on there. Why is student who up until now was, you know, mediocre at best, all of a sudden looking to excel? People should be gradually increasing their grades. Now, I thought I, you were going to talk about stimulant abuse. Well, we can get to that. that that's mm-hmm. Stimulant abuse we can get to, and we can get to that specifically as it's inappropriately used for diet purposes, mm-hmm. especially amongst teenage girls today, but we'll get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. Just speaking on the focus part of, 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 of warning signs, when I tell educators this, they're always like, oh, that can't be, and then they call me back, and they're like, you know what, you're right. You just wow. students that shot up from a C or B- minus to A's all of a sudden are getting 95s and 100s on tests. There was something either going on in the home that nobody realized, something going on in their personal life, something going on emotionally, something going on, you know, with inappropriate behaviors. So that's extremely important. But the stimulant abuse, absolutely. I mean, listen, you know, a lot of us today are getting to the point where children that have, whether it's severe ADHD or other issues, are more comfortable medicating our children than we were 10, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's very common. Mm-hmm. Now, problem comes as follows, right? Let's talk about this. So very often, and you'll know this better than I would, I guess, uh, a child is prescribed a dose in the morning and then an afternoon dose, right? A short-acting afternoon dose, right. A long-acting morning and a short-acting afternoon. Right. How often does the school know about the short-acting afternoon dose? They're supposed to. I, that's not, wasn't my question. Right. I don't know. <laughs> I fill up forms all the time. I don't know how often it happens. happens when the parents are too embarrassed because of oh. So they give the kid the medication. So first of all, you don't know if the child is actually taking their medicine. That's issue number one. Issue number two is because you don't know if your child is taking the medication, you don't know if they're sharing the medication. And I can tell you that we have an issue now, primarily, and you know, this is primarily with girls in high school, where they are sharing their prescribed medications with each other, either for the purpose of an inappropriate diet plan, mm-hmm. or because this one is cramming for a test right. and trying to get accepted and can't, whatever the reason is, and next thing you know, there's no tracking. Now, at the end of the day, we have to remember that our children are spending the bulk of their waking hours in the school setting. If we can't partner with the schools that we're entrusting our children to be in all day, then there's another inherent problem. So again, getting back to the prevention and relationship part, 
as important as it is for the parents to have a relationship with their child, it's just as important for that relationship to be between the school, the parents, and the child. Right. Just to point out that that means that a parent should not be not telling the school. They should be telling the school, and that medication should be in the nurse's office. If the school has a nurse, and if you're dealing with some of the more, you know, a lot of the more Hasidic schools that don't have a school nurse, Mm -hmm. you know, there should be another protocol set in place, whatever that protocol may be. Okay. To, to avoid diversion, because you're talking about it. diversion. Exactly. Uh, not, not just diversion, also to make sure the kid's taking it. It's not right. only diversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many times if a kid, uh, if, if, if a 13, 14-year-old is not taking their afternoon dose um, and they need it, they're coming home by 5, 6 o'clock at night, I don't want to be in the house with that child at that day, you know? Right. I mean, the way they're going to act. Now, there's another key thing also we have to remember, which is... Um, how do parents keep their child's medication in the home? Mm-hmm. Is it available for the child to get on their own or is the parent giving it to them? You know, again, I cannot tell you how often we've had situations where children are going into medicine cabinets and taking extra pills out. Nobody even realizes it, you know, and usually what ends up happening is, and this is something that we're seeing and we're catching it, you know, usually a few months after the fact where, you know, it's funny, my child's prescription was supposed to be refilled on the 15th of the month, but on this and this time, um, you know, we were missing three, four pills, but maybe we miscalculated and they're not really keeping track. Mm -hmm. These are things that really people have to keep in mind with prescription medications as prescribed to their children. Right. No, hundred percent. So talking about risk factors, can we go into those a little bit, please? Well, you know, it's a very tricky thing. If you would have asked me this question 20 years ago when I first got involved, (laughs) I could have given you a list of risk factors. Mm -hmm. Every person is at risk of all of these matters. And and it's scary to say that. I used to think that it was children from divorced homes that are higher risk. Children who have have lost a parent are at higher risk. Mm -hmm. Families that have mental ill, history of mental illness in the family is a higher risk. But the truth is today, what we're seeing now is it's so across the board Mm -hmm. that it just applies to everybody. You know, that brings up, I got an email from my my son's school um, that there is a Yeshiva League substance use initiative. And I was so surprised by the term substance use. They weren't even saying substance abuse. And the basic text of the letter is that we have been trying, we've been making assemblies and we've been trying to educate the parents and educate our students. And it's not as successful as we like because the culture is so, so forceful. The pro-drinking, smoking, vaping, marijuana culture is so prevalent that we have to do this more on a public health level. And they are actually doing anonymous surveys. And then they're going to be trying to actually make um, programming about this. And I also saw on your website that you are also starting a program called... I don't remember. So the substance abuse, um, substance use program, I think is amazing. Um, This has been long in the making an initiative that I I myself have, you know, had the honor of being somewhat involved in. Mm -hmm. Um, The goal of Darchinu is actually the exact opposite, meaning it is a social emotional learning competency curriculum that is being created for specifically for the firm schools from fifth through 12th grades something that is available in a lot of the more, you know, in the secular world and the non-Jewish world and in a lot of the modern Orthodox schools, but a lot of the firm schools would not accept the materials as they were. And it's interesting that the studies are showing 
that um, I think Columbia University did a study, I believe, in 2011 with about 270,000 students. Mm -hmm. And then they did a follow-up study with the same students, plus minus 3,000, I believe, mm -hmm. 2017. Mm -hmm. Studies came out like amazing. First of all, for every dollar invested in SEO programming, $11 went to ancillary treatment costs. Uh, there was like a 40 to 60% reduction of alcohol and substance abuse. Wow. Only use, but abuse. Um, there was a 13-point uh, higher uh, average on grades from students that had SEL programming than those that did not. Um, acceptance at the higher caliber colleges was, I think, 17% increase. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what's interesting is, is that SEL programming is really not about abuse or addiction or any of those matters. Right. SEL stands for social emotional learning. And what we're basically doing is we're, we're teaching resilience. Exactly. Teaching resilience, teaching healthy relationships, healthy friendships, healthy decision making. Um, we're basically teaching them how to be a mensch, I guess is right. the simplest way to describe it. So that is an initiative that we got involved in. Now, is this initiative going to be a combination of modern psychology and Torah, or is it just purely a secular program? I'm just curious. No, no, no. It is. It is. It involves Torah. It involves Kafa. It involves um, bringing in proof from you know from both. Uh, this was again. We have to customize for different schools because some places will allow us to quote Chumash. Some places will only want Medrash. But the answer is yes. It is incorporating Torah and the. Uh, psychological component to it and putting it together into an evidence-based format with the addition of the from components to it. This is amazing. You know, I actually interviewed the person who created the Ati Danu program. Okay. Do you know the Ati Danu program? It sounds familiar. No, it is specific to the Cleveland area. And Hannah Perel Handler, who is a uh, master's in social worker, created this program for social emotional resilience. It's a very, um, it's a more expensive after-school program. It's about a quarter of a million dollars a year to run for about 50 kids. So it's an expensive program. Um, and I have a talk about that. So I'm going to be sending it out the same week. So people who are listening to this talk, including you, um, can listen to our podcast on Atidena, which is called Catch Them Before They Fall. So that's also another. Listen, anything that's done in the field of prevention is extremely crucial. I mean, the biggest issue that we're having um, is where, you know, it's 35 minutes a week, 30 weeks a year. Mm -hmm. A lot of schools are like, well, when are we supposed to fit that in? You know, if they want to fit it in, if they want to fit it in, they will. It's really going to be a comment about the parents. I will read you a message that I just got this morning, okay? Mm -hmm. I can't even make this up if I try. I had no idea who this person was, and I'm not going to mention their name. But it said, good morning, Reb Tzvi. My name is so-and-so. I am a seventh-grade Rebbe at this and this place. I happen to be the Darchenu um, program uh, educator for sixth, seventh, and eighth grades. Mm -hmm. I want to tell you not, uh, I'm sorry. I want to tell you how much I enjoy teaching the program that I know that your organization is behind, even though it is run by a separate entity, which is true, because we, we're, we're just hoping to get the funding for it. Mm -hmm. But more importantly is how receptive the boys are to the program and how we're already noticing a change within the first few months. Wow. I'm not shocked by this because when I sat with the commissioner of Oasis and she told me that they're refocusing their energies on SEL-based programming as a prevention tool for substance um, abuse. Now, by the way, Oasis is the Office of Alcohol and Substance Abuse. It's a government agency in New York State. Mm -hmm. 
commissioner told me that in the biggest failing school district in New York, I forget which one it is, I don't want to mention any, but it was someplace upstate, mm-hmm. the border, they had instituted an SEL type program. And that school district in one year went from 4,000 visits to the principal's office for issues down to less than 400 in the first year. It's amazing. So that's surprised when I. But it when isn't. I, it's the ounce of prevention. Right. But, and this ounce of prevention, listen, I have to be very selfish. Do you know the reason why we're behind this program? I'll tell it to you straight. Because you want to go out of business. A hundred percent. I tried getting everybody in the education world to, to help fund it, run it. And I'm not trying to talk bad about anybody. They're all busy with so many great causes. I don't blame them. But it got to the point that everybody was laughing at me, like, oh, well, you think this is going to really help stop and put a rhythm out of business? And I'm like, yes. Yes. This will. And if it won't put us out of business 100%, it puts us out of business 80%. I mean, at this point right now, I mean, when you look at Amudim, we're probably the fastest growing nonprofit in the Jewish world. Mm -hmm. We went from three employees just six years ago to over 50. Mm -hmm. We went from $300,000 a year to just over $6 million a year. Uh, we've serviced over 6,000 clients, over 1,600 or so far serviced this year alone, and it's now March of 2020. Um, so for us, coming out of business or minimizing the amount of work we have to do is what we want to do. That's our goal. Our goal is not to stay in business. Our goal is right. to not be needed. I, I got to be honest. I love what I do. I hate that I have to do it. So it is so important for us that education and prevention and these tools are what are used in an effort to really, you know, curb this issue as best as humanly possible. Right, right. Now back to Purim, because we talked a little bit about the whole concept of, of the first time and younger children is more dangerous. There's also a concept of the gateway drug. Right. So the gateway component is something I, I generally stay away from only because the data, I'm a big data person and I, I do things based on data, but let's mm-hmm. be practical. Gateway or not, because of this, and I'm going to say quote unquote, not to go against the Torah, but I want to be very clear, okay? So quote unquote, everybody mm-hmm. thinks it's a mitzvah to get drunk and a chiv, especially you over my mitzvah, you have to fast, you have so you need to get drunk. So I can tell you as, as, as a Hatzalah volunteer for over 20 years, as someone who has sat in emergency rooms, with teenagers, 13, 14, 15 of getting their stomachs pumped, pumped, okay? There is no mitzvah for that. I have not seen that mitzvah anywhere in the Torah that I have seen. So I, I think it's really important. Now, I will give a lot of credit. A lot of yeshivas are stepping up their game. They're making prom parties specifically in the evening time with the rabbin and the kids. We're making sure nobody's drinking. People are really getting better. The problem has been getting better over the last few years. Mm-hmm. However, it is still a problem. Absolutely. We need to be able to understand. And, you know, I always say, Purim is not the problem. The whole year is the problem. But Purim is the day that people forget about that and they just, oh, well, we have to do this or my friends are doing this. And it's something that really parents need to. So if there's incentive-based programming that parents can possibly do, where... um they can, you know, if you don't, uh, I know some yeshivas have a thing where if you learn on Purim instead of going out, you know, you get something per hour or some other type of incentive to get kids not to want to drink on Purim. I would say go for it. If the schools can have programs, I would say go for it. I think that Purim has become an excuse and something that is really, really a big problem. And we need to make sure that we put a stop to it as much as we can. 
Right, and also for parents to model. Well, obviously, I mean, if the kids are... Obvious, I'm saying it anyway. You know what, you're right. And, I, I, and, and, and I'm so thinking about what I said initially about having the alcohol on the table and all those things that I keep forgetting that I should be repeating it time and time again because just because it's obvious to me and you doesn't mean it's obvious to everybody else. So I should have, I should have not said that, and I'm proud to admit that I shouldn't have said that. It's not obvious. Right, and I'm not a rabbi. You are, but Adelia Yada does not mean stinking drunk. Exactly, but we can also go, listen, you want to really be really chumadik, go take a nap for 30 minutes, you were yaitza, according to every shita. Because mm-hmm. 30 minutes, you had no idea where you were, you were napping. Um, but that's not what people want to hear. But yes, when children, even if you do incentive programming with them, if they watch their fathers getting, you know, completely plastered, and, and let's be honest, most people, when they're getting drunk, they're also acting extremely ridiculous. Let's look at all the effects. Now, let's talk about the safety precautions as well, okay? Mm-hmm. First of all, um, studies clearly show in drunk driving accidents, it's usually not the drunk that ends up dead or injured. It's everybody else, mm-hmm. okay? Which also means that the person that was driving drunk that was in that accident lives with that guilt their entire life, right. okay? That's one component. <clears throat> the other difference is people getting drunk, doing stupid things like running into a street and getting hit by a car. Mm-hmm. Well, Tripping down a flight of steps and getting brain damage or severe head injury or other types of breaks. So there's so many other parts to when people are getting drunk that is an issue. It's not just about the alcohol specifically. It's not just about acting immature. It's not just about, you know, throwing up. There's the potential of liver damage. And people don't get this. Somebody can get really drunk one time and actually cause real liver damage. Right. It is not to die. If you drink enough, you can die. Well, they can, people can die. They can get, you know, there's, there's, and they, they can get, they can die from the drinking. They can die secondarily, whether it's, right. you know, tripping, falling, getting hit by a car, accident, anything. So this is a question of when we talk about this, you know, in Hatsala, everybody knows that we will go out on a call, even on Yom Kippur, for a suffix to Kuach Nefesh, right? If it's a questionable issue. Children drinking is not a suffix. It is a vadai. So if I'm allowed to violate Yom Kippur on a suffix, then I can tell you that giving a kid to drink is, 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 is the absolute, like there's no even words for it, especially when they're getting drunk and all these other dangers can happen to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So any lasting messages you want to give? Any final messages for parents and for teens? I mean, so- a lot of drought. So I can say like this, we'll, we'll try to just, you know, to bring it all together, okay? Mm-hmm. For parents, step number one, have a relationship with your child. I cannot tell you how to do that. You know your child better than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, they learn by example, so lead by example, okay? This whole concept of do as I say, not as I do, does not work. Right. Make sure your kids feel comfortable if there's a problem, they can talk to you. Partner with your children's schools. Make sure the schools have good prevention programming, good systems in place, have good models to make sure whether it's on alcohol use, whether it's on drugs, whether it's just having a relationship with the school that they should know about medications your kids are on, okay? And the message to the teens is really very, very simple. At the end of the day, it's a lot of fun. We all know that. But just because something is fun doesn't mean it's good for you. And it doesn't mean that people are not going to have to live with regrets their entire lives for making really, really silly mistakes when they're younger. Absolutely. So, you know, at the end of the day, you got your whole life ahead of you. 
kids want to grow up, they want to get good jobs, they want to go into good careers, they want to get into good colleges, they want to go into chinuch, whatever it is, don't let a silly mistake of getting too drunk and causing anything as minor as destroying the rest of your life because people now saw you in a certain way that will stay with you, to chas v'shalom as major as causing somebody to get seriously sick, injured, or even possibly pass away. Right. All right, this was so helpful. I cannot thank you enough for taking some of your precious time, and I want to wish everybody a happy and healthy Purim. Thank you, and thank you so much for the opportunity, and hopefully the day will come when we won't have to have these conversations anymore. Absolutely. Be well. Take care. Kultov. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.